Alright, we're studying first and second Samuel. And last week we finished first uh, Samuel, and we're starting out on the second one this time. Now, originally these two books were both one. That was just the book of Samuel. Um, so when you think of the outline, you want to think of it as a as a unit. Um, at the beginning of Samuel, there is no king. Um, they, what they had before they had kings? They had judges. Yeah. Now, of course, God was the king, and, and you're right about that, Ralph. As far as their earthly government went, they had judges. And when the people wanted a king, it, it was not pleasing to Samuel, and it wasn't pleasing to God. God gave them a king that they would want. It wasn't the king that God would want. And and they saw the results. Who was that king? Saul. Yeah, that was Saul. <clears throat> and what, did, what what characteristics did he have that the people liked? His head and shoulders above. Head and shoulders taller than anyone else. Yeah, that's which makes a lot of difference when you're uh, fighting hand-to-hand battles like they did back then. And and he proved uh, he proved quite a good leader with that first battle. You remember when the people of Jabesh Gilead were being attacked by the king of Ammon? He rescued them. Um, but by the end, he he was rejected by God because he he was disobeying God. And so then God picked someone after his heart, and who was that? David, yes. Samuel anointed him long before he ever became king. In fact, Samuel was dead by the time David became king. So we, we saw the failure of Saul's kingship, and then we had David and Saul together, and we, and we just finished that last week with Saul trying to kill David because he knew David was going to be the next king, and he didn't, didn't want that to happen. And then at the very end of the... Uh, the book Saul died, but um, David didn't. David didn't know Saul was dead at the end of the book, and so that brings us to the beginning. Uh, at the beginning of Second Samuel, that's when David actually learns what happened. Now let me just switch to our maps. Most of the events we've had up to this point uh, have been in the southern part of this of the land of uh, of Israel. Um, Saul was from what tribe? Benjamin. Benjamin, which this is the region of Benjamin here. David was from what tribe? Judah. Judah. Judah's down here. Um, but it's going it, to. We're switching over to a more of a. A national picture here. At the very end of 1 Samuel, the Philistines set. They picked the stage for the battle, um, and where did they decide the battle was going to be? Yeah, in the valley of Jezreel. And the Philistines are down here. They march all the way up to Jezreel, and then Saul, of course, had to go up there to, to fight them. Um, and we're going to see some other things on this map that are, are quite a bit out of the range of the normal of where we've been dealing with down here. Um, Saul, of course, died in that battle, and they and the Philistines 
cut his head off and took the head, put it in their, their own idol temple. And what did they do with his body? Yeah, anyone remember the town they, whose wall they used? Beth Shan. Yes, Beth Shan. Which all the Israelites had run away. They, they, they'd been living in Beth Shan. They ran away as soon as they found out the Philistines had won the battle. But the, the, the bodies didn't stay there very long because who rescued them? The, the folks from the city that uh, Saul had originally... Been. Yes, the people of Jabesh Gilead who Saul had saved at the very beginning of his reign, they remembered him. And here at the end of his reign, they went and by night took down the bodies, took them back to their town and buried them. Yeah, Eric. Where's the chapter are we on right now? Well, I'm still reviewing, but we're going to be in 2 Samuel 1. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Um, Whose uh, territory is that on the right side of the river? There was two and a half tribes over there. Right. Uh, Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh. And I don't know which one is specifically <laughs> Jabesh Gilead. Um, this, this map doesn't have the tribes on it. I, Matthew's suggesting Manasseh, which so I think he... It looks he, like, according to one map, Gad goes up that far. Okay. So, yeah. Um, now, um, so as we go into chapter 1 of Second Samuel... As we said, David didn't know how the battle ended up because, of course, they didn't have um, instant communications back then. They had to have people actually come in person and tell them what was going on. But it says on the third day, he got the news. Um, a man came and told him that Saul had lost. Saul and Jonathan were dead. And um, in fact, he even had an interesting story that we didn't read about in 1 Samuel when Saul died. What was his story? David ought to be grateful to him because he killed the king. He's the one that actually killed Saul. Now what did we read about in 1 Samuel? That he attempted to have his armor bearer kill him and when he wouldn't do it that he fell on the sword. Yeah, fell on the sword himself. Well, how do you reconcile Is the Bible contradicting itself here? How do you reconcile this? No, you got a liar. <laughs> this guy's lying, that's right. Why would you lie and tell someone you killed someone when you hadn't? They might hope for a reward. Yeah, because he knew that Saul had been chasing David for years. So he figured, hey, if I tell him I killed Saul, David's going to you know, reward me. So what was the reward that he got? <laughs> David had him executed for killing the king. That <laughs> wasn't a very good idea. Um, and then David penned this um, poem at the end of chapter 1 that is just very poignant. Um, and he just, I mean, he's very, he's very grieved at, at the death of Saul and Jonathan, which when you think about this, all the times, he, all the trouble he's had with Saul, but that's, none of that is in this poem. You know, even at the very end, you know, that's what you get for certain, you know, it doesn't put any of that in there. It's just, he, he looks at Saul not from his own personal perspective, but from the nation's perspective, and he sees that Saul had done a lot of good for the nation. And, and, that, and people needed to be sorry when he's gone now. I mean, even though he, end, he ended his life pretty bad. I mean, we, we understand that. And then David, I'm sure, understood that too. But um, 
there was still a lot of good he had done, and, and David appreciated that. I mean, it's just, it, it's a wonderful poem, and, and, and it really says a lot about David that he can see uh, the good in, in a man who certainly couldn't see any good in, in David. Yeah. I was just trying to remember how long Saul had been king. Well, we don't know. Um, this is a, f- a funny thing that that there is a <clears throat> the nu- some of the numbers in in the books of Samuel have been corrupted, and um, the the place where it would tell how many years he reigned um, has. Has not the copyists have not gotten it back down to its right. Um, it, 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 I, I don't. See, it was a couple weeks ago when we did this this, this section, but oh yeah, chapter thirteen, chapter thirteen, verse one. Look, look at that one. Are you reading? What, what translation are you reading out of? Okay, great. Read verse one. Saul was thirty years old when he Okay, but now there's a problem. Notice two of those words are in italics, yes, and when important. and when the when the New American Standard puts words in italics, it means it's had to insert them because they weren't in the original. So literally, it was Saul was years old <laughs> when he began to reign, and he reigned two years over Israel. Well, something's ha- something happened when people were copying this text, and, and and the numbers have dropped out. So that's why I say I don't know how long he reigned. We do you know how old David was when he took up this? Yes. Well, yeah. I, I, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying all the numbers are, are wrong. I mean, most of the numbers are right. I, sh- I, I really should tell you that. But, but periodically you'll find a number that's that's clearly has been messed up. Well, we can take a guess. Twenty years. Um, yeah. Well, even forty-two it wouldn't be too. I mean, that that wouldn't be a bad guess. Um, uh, but yeah, David was thirty when he when he began to reign. That so Saul died when David was thirty years old. Um, but we don't know how. You know that that would mean that you know Saul was already king when David was born. Well, that's not that's no surprise. Um, so so then um, after after David realizes Saul's dead, then David needs to know what to do. He doesn't have to continue living in Gath. Well, he's actually in Ziklag um, because the king of Gath had given him Ziklag, but he was in Philistine territory. He doesn't have to keep doing that because Saul's not after him anymore. So he inquires of God, and where does God tell him to go? This is in chapter 2. Hebron. To Hebron, yes. Um, now here's Hebron almost smack in the middle of, of Judah. And it's in the it's in the region where he did where David was hanging around a lot when he was running away from Saul. Where where was David originally from? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Yeah, which is up here close to, to Jerusalem. But God told him to go to Hebron. Um, and how long was he in Hebron? Seven. Yeah, seven and a half years. And the reason why it took so long was that there was another king. Who was the other king? Yeah, Ishbosheth, the the son of Saul, and um, Abner had made him king. Who is Abner? Saul's commander. Yeah, Saul's commander. We had him once when um, when David uh, borrowed Saul's spear in his water bottle, and he blamed Abner for 
without guard and the king. Yeah, Abner, um, of course, Abner's only hope for power is to have a, a, you know, somebody of the family of Saul reigning. I mean, Abner doesn't have any claim himself, but all the power in, in this in this new empire or new new reign is really Abner's. Is not Ishbosheth's. He takes him across the river to uh, the the city of Mahanaim, which is way up here, and makes him king there. The reason why he doesn't make him king over here is probably twofold. The, the Philistines have, have control of a lot of the territory, and also he'd be awfully near David. And now there's a civil war. Um, you have a, tribes fighting against each other because Judah has proclaimed David king, and some and some of the other tribes apparently have gone with Ishbosheth. At least Abner claims they have. Um, and in that, and so they have one real hard-fought battle, and they have a number of little skirmishes over the years. In the hard-fought battle, who won that? Yeah, David's men under who? Who was the, the captain of David's men? Joab. Joab. Yeah, David himself didn't even wasn't even in the battle apparently, but Joab went up with his men. And, um, Joab is going to be the ca- the commander of David's men. From now on, all the way till till David dies. The story of his history. What's his? Um, he Joab is um, David's nephew. His sister is the mother of Joab. And there were three. There were three sons of his sister, uh, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, who were all in David's army. Um, after this battle, there's two of them. What happened to the other one? Yeah, yeah. He chased down Abner, and and he was a, he was young. He was inexperienced, but young men he could run faster than Abner could run. But inexperienced means he he didn't know how to defend himself, and uh, so and Abner tried to talk him out of it. He, Abner knew he was going to be in big trouble if he killed Joab's brother, but. What could he do? He, you know, in self-defense, he had to do something. So that was the end of Asahel. Um, then in um, in chapter three, it says, "Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually." So you know, I'm sure Ishbosheth and Abner both are realizing, you know, we're on the wrong side of this. You know, we're losing. And then uh, there comes a break between Abner and Ishbosheth. What was the break over? This is in chapter three, verse um, seven. Did he sleep with his wife? Right. Yeah. He he slept with uh, Saul's concubine, and um, which that was basically for that was to do that openly at least would be to claim. I am. The, I have the rights to be king because that that was just the way the, the, it worked. The king got the previous king's wives, so um, Ishbosheth, you know, asked him about it, and Abner got really mad. Um, the fact that Abner got really mad would that indicate to you that Abner hadn't really done it? He was innocent. <laughs> People typically get really mad when they're guilty, don't they? <laughs> they don't like to be called on it. <laughs> Um, so what did Abner decide to do since he had been rebuked? He was going to give the kingdom over to David. Yeah, and he, and he tells his to his face. I mean, what a jerk, you know. And 
So he um, uh, he says in verse 18, he t- tells the, all the elders of Israel, The Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. I wonder how long he's known that. You know, why has he been fighting against David all this time if he knows the Lord has said this? <clears throat> yeah, he's not a... Well, of course, none of these army guys seem to be real commendable people. <laughs> But David accepts the offer and, and David only has one requirement before he comes to see him. What is that? Yeah, got to get his first wife. And then, then David makes an official request from Ishbosheth, and and Abner arranges it to happen so he gets his wife back. Meanwhile, she's been married for years to this other guy. Um, now she's back with David and I don't, I don't know which one she would prefer because nobody asked her. <laughs> Yeah, he was pretty upset about it. Yeah, um, but even his, you know, he he follows her for a ways, mourning and crying and all that. And there's a political reason for letting him do that, because when all the people, you know, the, the story is going to get out, you know, that Michael's going back to David and and Michael's husband's crying all the way. Everyone's going to understand. Oh. David's the one who has more power than Ishbosheth, because this was in Ishbosheth's territory where where she's being sent back from. So politically, it, it didn't hurt David at all to have the guy crying as as she went back. Um, and then Abner himself comes for a visit. And David gives him a big feast, and then he's he's gone. And um, uh, Joab, meanwhile, was out on a raid. Apparently, um, they're still having to support themselves by. By raiding, they're not being, not doing so hot as a king yet. Um, and then, what does Joab do when he finds out Abner's been there and has gone back? He invites him back for a special. Yeah, murders the guy. I mean, just in cold blood, just murders him. And you know, I can't imagine that the laws about um, the avenger of blood would apply in a case like this. In the first place, uh, Asahel died in a war. In the second place, it was clearly he was killed in, in self-defense. Um, but I'm actually not certain that Joab <clears throat> was doing this just because he was mad at Abner. Because we're going to see later on in Joab's life, um, he's very jealous of anybody who might take his place as commander of the army. And, and there was a very real chance that Abner might have, since he had been commander of, of the whole armies of Israel. So um, Joab can use as his excuse that, you know, I'm the avenger of blood, but in fact, he's knocking off a rival claim for, you know, to be the, the commander. And David, why didn't David punish Joab? Because they're too strong for him. Yeah, too strong for him, yeah. But he did arrange for later. Yeah, he finally arranged for his son to do the job after he died. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that in First Kings. <laughs> um, yeah, um, there are situations where even the king does not have as much power as you might think. And this is one of those cases. Yeah, Ralph. Just a, a, a learning, studying type of a question. Verse 30 tells us that Job and Abishai, his brother, Right. So, should we read further into that? Thinking maybe he did it because of this, or maybe he did it because of that? 
I guess you'll, you can you can wait till you see the next time he kills a guy. <laughs> but um, oh, oh yeah, I mean that was the public reason. I mean clearly they made they made it clear, and and the author is is just simply pointing that out. But that doesn't mean that they might have had another reason in the back of their minds. And and when you when you see how he behaves later, you you can project it back on this one. <laughs> yeah. And was it an offense to David the king? Hospitality was an important issue. Yeah. Yeah, what does he care, you know? Yeah. It's just slap in the face to David. Yeah, David just has to take it with him because David couldn't do without Joab. And and I'm not I don't I don't I'm not convinced he would have had an army if he had executed Joab. I mean they were they loved Joab. He he was one of their kind. And without an army, David would have been in big, big trouble. Was David's uh, his reaction to Abner's death was quite extreme? <coughs> he really lamented over him and, and, and cried over him and stuff. Uh, was that because of his position of authority, or was that some relationship? Um, he he certainly was not related to Abner. I mean, he knew Abner. Of course, he'd been in the army back when Abner was the commander. Um, I think. I mean. What's going on here was the same thing that went went on when the guy said, "Hey, I've killed Saul." I mean, David is a righteous man, and he just cannot handle um, people shedding innocent blood, and that's what's going on here. And it, it was just, um, yeah. And I'm sure he was grieved with the fact that even he he was in, you know, part of it since he was the one that invited Abner for the for the feast. And politically, it didn't help David at all to have Abner getting killed. That's just going to... I mean, Abner was the one trying to get everybody to be on David's side, and, and now the news comes out. Yeah, Abner went to see David, and he got murdered by David's you know, captain. <laughs> um, uh, but da- I think David's grief was genuine. I don't think he was just playing politics. He, he really was sorry for what had happened. And, and I think he was also sorry he couldn't do anything about the murderer. Like, you know, Joab's getting off scot-free here. Well, we're not done shedding blood here. We get chapter four. <laughs> Ishbosheth, he's still king, even though he doesn't have a captain of an army anymore. What happens to him? His own army guys kill him. Why? That's all they. That's all it was. Yeah, they they knew they were on the losing side. If they kill their king, then David will give them a reward. If they just hang around and wait till the whole thing collapses, then what do they have? So they got their reward. What was their reward? <laughs> Same thing happened to the guy that said he killed Saul. <laughs> By this time, when David explains it, it sounds like David realizes now that the first guy had been lying about killing Saul. I don't know that he knew that back when he had the guy executed. But he knows these guys aren't lying. They brought the head with them. It's just terrible. So um, he has them executed as well. And then finally, all the tribes come together to um, uh, to anoint David as king. Now, let me just take a side... Um, do a little aside here. There is another book that's parallel to this story. What is that other book in the Bible? First Chronicles. Yes. So, 
when we get to First Chronicles, which will be in a few weeks, we'll, we'll be doing some of these stories over again. Um, and in First Chronicles, they're going to give a lot more detail to what we're finding in chapter 5. And I'm going to spoil it telling you ahead of time, but it's nothing bad or anything. But it just um, the emphases of the two different books are different. And the Chronicles writer, he's got one point he's trying to make, and the Samuel writer has a different point he's trying to make. And so in the, with the Samuel one, it's just very brief. All Israel came, made him king, done. Chronicles is going to give us a whole chapter on it. <laughs> um, and David, once he becomes king of all Israel, he knows he needs a new capital, a better capital. And where does he pick for his capital? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, um, Jerusalem has the advantage of being closer to the center. It was on exactly on the border between Judah and Benjamin, so it wouldn't be looked like as you know that's it, you know that's your your own tribe's city. It was a very secure place. Uh, if if you were going to be invaded, uh, Jerusalem would be a good place to, to be. You know, if you only had walls around the city and all that. There was only one problem with making it the capital, which was what? People there were not. Uh, yeah, the Jebusites were there. They weren't Israelites. They'd been there since before Israel came in the land, and they weren't going to let David in. They they were in a, a very powerful position. You know, you, you take a you take a city up on a mountain like that, difficult to get up to, strong walls around it. It doesn't take much to defend it. In fact, what they say they could defend their city with blind and lame people. <laughs> blind and lame people. <laughs> They're kind of taunting David. You know, <laughs> hey, the blind and the lame will keep you out. You're not getting here. <clears throat> Well, he um, he made a promise. And what was the promise? This is in chapter 5, verse 8. Yeah, actually I've realized the promise I'm thinking of is only in Chronicles. He actually promised whoever took the city would become the captain of the army. And who was it that did it? Joab. Yeah, Joab did it. Yeah. Um, and I want to show you what we think David meant with this when he mentioned the water course. Um, it's not not the Christmas of Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> it's not a great picture. <laughs> but Apparently, there were these ancient tunnels that, in, in fact, archaeologists have found them. The, the one that's the most famous is this tunnel here. This is the tunnel that Hezekiah dug. Well, Hezekiah hadn't been born yet, so this tunnel didn't exist at the time of David. But they did have a tunnel from going from about from down here all the way up into the city, starting in other words, starting outside the city walls and going into the city walls. And the tunnel was so they could get water. I mean, when you put up, when you have a city up on a, on a mountain, water is a big problem because you know water tends to go down. Oh. So they had dug a tunnel. They didn't want to go. If you're in an under siege, you didn't want to go outside the walls to get water. They dug a tunnel down to a spring, which it was actually outside the walls, but um, <clears throat> it wasn't very obvious that you could actually get into it through there. But David and Job apparently knew you could. And I've read an article about someone that's actually climbed that. 
and, and you you have to basically wear mountain climber gear to do it because it's got some you know some vertical ascents. What well, what would happen if you're inside the city during a siege? You could you could go down this. There were some steps. You could go down to here pretty easily. At this point, you would lower a bucket on a rope to the bottom where there was water, and then you get your water and, and you have something to drink during the siege. Well, going back up without the rope is a big challenge. <laughs> Joab did it. Got in. Nobody knew. I guess he was in there, and he opened the gates, and that was that. Um, you know, you can see why David needs them. <clears throat> But he certainly wasn't the godly person we'd want. So from this point forward, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And it was still the capital in Jesus' day. Um, and then it, the rest of chapter 5 tells about a couple battles he has with the Philistines because you know they realize they're going to be in trouble if they let David uh, continue the way he's going. So, and then in chapter 6, and I know these, these stories may not necessarily be in chronological order. Um, the author, it, it, he's, he, he has certain points to make, but it's not necessarily trying to tell you the whole story in order. But at some point, after David becomes king, he realizes that with Jerusalem being the camp of the land, also needs to be the, the location of the tabernacle. And so he had built, he built a tabernacle, apparently a brand new one, because the original tabernacle by now, at one point, let's see here, at one point it was in Shiloh. Shiloh's gone. Then it was in Nob, um, and then Saul had all the priests in Nob killed, and then it it, it got moved to Gibeon. So it, it, at this time in the history, it's at Gibeon. David built a second tabernacle and put it in Jerusalem and brought the ark into it. The ark wasn't in either place. The ark had been just in someone's house all this time. You remember when the Philistines sent it back, they just kind of put it in someone's house to wait. So um, chapter 6 tells about moving the ark into Jerusalem. And they had just one problem, which was what? It was a delay because of an unfortunate... (laughs) Yeah, an accident. (laughs) Well, how were you supposed to move the ark? Yeah, it had poles. You put it up, put the priests carried the, with the poles. Uh, but the last time the ark was moved, how was it moved? On a cart. Yeah, the Philistines sent it back to Israel on a cart, a brand new cart. So David, I, I I would guess, knowing no better, David just got another new cart, had the ark put on there, and a guy died touching the ark to keep it from falling off, and so. Um, David then had to do some research, but they finally, the second time, several months later, they they had they were doing it right. They were carrying the ark. And the other story that happens here is that David's dancing in front of the uh, in front of the ark. Um, no, 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 no. I don't get to that. Um, it says he was wearing a linen ephod. Now, a couple weeks ago, Ralph was asking what an ephod was. This is a different kind of ephod from the one I told you about last time. The one I told you about last time was a high priest ephod that had all the stones on it, all pretty. This is an ordinary, plain white ephod which the priest would wear. Samuel had worn one. You can read about that in, in I think, chapter 4. No, it's probably chapter 2. It's earlier on. Um, <clears throat> and so David is wearing what would normally be worn by a priest. Um, 
I don't think David's claimed to be a priest, but he he is what he's doing. He's not doing it with his royal robes on as a king. He's doing it more. He's doing a religious exercise, and so he's dressed in the same way the priest would be dressed. And the daughter of the previous king thinks this is disgraceful for the king to be dressed like just some ordinary person instead of with the royal robes. It, it, the, we you got to be careful. We're, don't think immodesty when you read this. You know when she taught, says he uncovered himself. All she means is um, that this is beneath you to be dressed like that. And David's attitude is, it's not beneath me at all. I am serving God, and I'll humble myself before God. And, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, the story is, I think, told just to show you the difference between the family of Saul and the family of David and their attitudes. She, Michael was the daughter of Saul and she really has Saul's attitude. And um, at the very end, we see what God's attitude on this is. It says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now that, that wasn't because David retaliated and you know, not sleeping with her. Or something. David's been married to her for years. In fact, she's been married to another guy for years. This is God's judgment on her. Um, God did not want Saul's line to be perpetuated. I mean, imagine if she'd had a son by David, you know, the people would have thought, wow, this has got to be the next king because, you know, you know, the connection with both kings. But God did not want that to happen. Any questions? All right, chapter 7, David wants to... Um, he wants to do something more for God. He's got, the, he's got the tabernacle in Jerusalem. He's got the ark in the tabernacle. But it just doesn't seem appropriate. What does he want to do? He has a house. Yeah. yeah. And I'll just mention, he had a really fancy house. Uh, the, the, uh, the king of Tyre had sent some people to help him out building this, this place. And if I mentioned a few weeks ago that, that uh, video that you can get on um, YouTube, uh, and I forget the name of it right now. If you need it, let me know. Um, but he has some video of excavations where they think they have found David's house, um, the, the foundations of his house. And if they're correct, his house was six stories tall. They can just tell from the size of the foundations. It was it was quite a mansion. Um, and he wants to make something you know corresponding to that, you know, equally la- lavish for for God. And and what's Nathan's view? The prophet Nathan. Good, idea. good yeah, good idea. What's God's idea about this? <laughs> yeah, um, God doesn't think like we do. Amen. Thank God. <laughs> well, that's that's very true. <laughs> Thank God that He doesn't think like us. Um, so, God has plans, and He and He does want to have a temple. But it has to be built right by the right person. David's been a man of war. He, um, once the wars are over, there's going to be a man of peace who's going to build the temple. But first, God has to build David a house. <laughs> a family, of course, is what he's talking about, the house of David. And this becomes the foundation of all the prophecies that show that the Messiah, the Christ, who of course we know as Jesus, would be descendant of David. This prophecy is the foundation one for that. Um, that um, your house and your kingdom shall endure me before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 
that prophecy can only be fulfilled when you understand that Jesus is the son of David. And, and so that David's house is still going on today with a son of David reigning over God's people. And so what David did, I mean, David accepted this, of course, as he all did everything God said, but he, um, he then spent the rest of his reign gathering materials for the temple so that when Solomon did build it, he had tons of gold available, tons of cedar and everything else that he needed. It's just a matter of putting it together, which took him seven years, but <laughs> it would have been a lot longer if he'd had to go out and find the gold. Um, then in chapter 8, we have a summary of David's... Uh, Triumphs, the different places where he, different directions he attacked. In fact, I think it might be better if I switch to another map. Um, this shows after it was all over. He's conquered Edom, he's conquered Moab, he's conquered Ammon, he's conquered this little area called Tob, um, he's conquered the Syrians. He hasn't conquered the Phoenicians. They're the ones that built him his house. And he really hasn't... I mean, he's, sub, he's subdued the, Philistine, the Philistines, but I'm not sure that he's completely conquered them. But basically, he's got peace in all different directions. Either, either they're on his side or, or he's, he's gone to war with them. And, and the, the chapter ends kind of like it's the end of his reign. Verse 15, So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice, righteousness. Joab was over the army, and Jehoshaphat was the recorder. Zadok the son of Ahitub and Ahimelech the son of Abiathar were the high priests. This is a very strange thing. There were two high priests in the days of, of David. And the reason for that is that the one high priest had run away when Saul killed all of his family, and that was Abiathar. He'd stayed with David while David was in, in the cave. So they had to have a high priest, so Saul or somebody else had gotten someone else from who was descendant of Aaron, who was Zadok. So now you got two, and that's not going to get resolved until after David's dead and Solomon resolves it. Um, we'll, we'll, so hold on for that. So this this basically finishes part one of David's reign. Yeah, Ralph. I just want to, uh, we had a discussion at home this morning at the end of 18. Um, in, the, in the NIV it said David's sons were priests. So we did some little research looking at the different translations. And even... Uh, in, in the uh, Hebrew American Standard, it says literally priest. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the Hebrew word used here does mean priest. It's the normal word used for priests. But um, <clears throat> words are funny in languages, and, and of course we're going way back before anyone knows for sure how the words were used. But um, even in in political. In political terms, even today, people will use words that, with a kind of an odd meaning. I mean, you, you've probably heard of, um, well, I mean, this uses the term chief minister, and, and people will do that today. You know, they'll talk about uh, the, the cabinet minister. You've probably heard that term. Well, now, minister in our English language usually is a religious word. I mean, you won't usually think of a minister as being a preacher. Uh, I think most people do. Um, I'm, so it's. But it's being used in a different sense. If it's a cabinet, you know, the cabinet minister doesn't mean he's the guy that leads the prayer at the cabinet. I mean, he's just one of the members of the cabinet. Um, and so they were probably, I mean, because I, I mean, David's sons could not have been real priests. I mean, they, they were not Levites. So probably they're using this term in, 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 with a, with a, a, 
some kind of a political meaning. So I think that the, the translation of the American Senate as chief ministers is a good one. Uh, but you know, we're just having to basically guess because um, this, you know, it was a long time ago, and, and the words, you know, we don't. There, there are some Hebrew words that people don't really even know today what they meant. I like to think of it when we talk about David dancing with the ephod, you know, because it was a religious type of thing. Maybe these guys were in charge of, uh, you know, spiritual. That's possible. Yeah, we we don't have any more information than what we have in this verse. So yeah, yeah, that's it. So now we start part two of, of... Well, actually, I shouldn't say we start part two. We've got one chapter that's kind of an appendix to part one. Part two is going to get it... We're going to get into that in chapter 10. Now, the appendix is chapter nine, and that's a wonderful story. I don't know just when it happens during his reign, although we get some ideas from the fact that Mephibosheth has a young child at this time. And yet he was... Um, he was really young when, 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 his, when Saul was... And and his dad Jonathan died. I think he was like five years old when, when they died. So and and uh, and there was this unfortunate thing happened on the day they died. What happened? In fleeing, he was dropped. Yeah, his nurse was running from the Philistines and dropped him, and and both of his feet were injured, and they never did heal right, and he was lame from then on. Um, and and that's kind of an important point. Why would it be important that Mephibosheth is lame? Well, he couldn't, he couldn't be a, a soldier. And if you can't be a soldier, you can't be king. Yeah. So even though he is in the direct line from Saul, Saul to Jonathan to Mephibosheth, uh, then he can't be king because he's lame. And and in fact, Ziba, who is Ziba, seems to be concerned about it, and he says there is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled on both feet, and. I, I think he's mentioning this so that David, you know, trying to disarm David, because David's asking, "Hey, are there any remnants of Saul's family left?" And what's the normal thought when someone asks that? So I could get rid of him, <laughs> but that's not, you know, David's a very different type of person. And Mephibosheth even seems to be kind of scared when he comes to see David, and so David says, "Don't, don't be scared," you know. And and what a wonderful story it is with him giving this great honor to a descendant of his enemy, Saul. I mean, just of course, he's also a descendant of his friend, Jonathan. Uh, but it, it really speaks well of David, and um, it's, it's almost the last refreshing story we have in David's life, unfortunately. It, it just it really turns down at this point. Hadn't Jonathan asked David to promise? That yeah, and, and he was keeping that promise. He was keeping that promise. Yeah. And so now we start... The downward. And I want to read. Um, this is kind of old-fashioned language, but um, Edersheim wrote about 120, 30 years ago. Um, but he really has some great things to say as we as we go into this second phase of of David's life. He says there is one marked peculiarity about the history of the most prominent biblical personages, of which the humbling lesson should sink deep into our hearts. As we follow their onward and upward progress, they seem at times almost to pass beyond our reach, as if they had not been compassed with the same infirmities as we, and their life of faith were so far removed as scarcely to serve as an example to us. And you know, we, we think about that when we think of you know Moses on the mountain, 40 days fasting, and, and, and all that. Such thoughts 
are terribly rebuked by the history of their sudden falls, which shed a lurid light on the night side of their character, showing us also on the one hand through what inward struggles they must have passed, and on the other how divine grace alone had supported and given them the victory in their many untold contests. I mean, you think of David killing Goliath, you know, wow, how could you be any higher up than that? And then you think of David killing his soldier Uriah to cover up his sin, and you think, how could you stoop lower than that? And uh, so what Edersheim is saying, um, this kind of gives a light even on what was going on even in the good times, that God, by His grace, was sustaining these guys. He says, but more than that, we find this specially exhibited just as these heroes of, of faith attain, so to speak, the spiritual climax of their life. It seems like when they, they can't, when they get to the point where they just can't get any higher, they suddenly fall where they can't get any lower. As if the more clearly they set it forth from the eminence which, which, with which they had reached. Accordingly, the climax of their history often also marks the commencement of their decline. It was so in the case of Moses and of Aaron, in that of David and of Elijah. But there is one exception to this, or rather we should say one history to which the opposite of this remark applies, that of our blessed Lord and Savior. The climax in the history of His life among men was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when His clothes shone and all that? And though what followed marks His descent into the Valley of Humiliation, even to the bitter end, yet the glory around Him only grew brighter and brighter to the resurrection morning. Uh, that's just, it's marvelous. It's a marvelous observation. And, and it's something for us to keep in mind as we read about these people that um, their triumphs are evidence of the grace of God and their failures are evidence of what happens when they're living without God's grace. And we're, we're no different today. And, and if we could just realize that, that when, when life is going great and, and, and you know, it just seems like we can't get any higher, it's by the grace of God. We're, we're very, very tempted at times like that to say, oh, well, it's because I'm such a smart businessman or because I'm a, such a, a clever uh, you know, Bible student or a preacher or, or, or carpenter or whatever it might be. Pride goes before the fall. And it's very clear in this story that um, Dave was feeling just really good about himself. He, he had he'd done it all. And we've got to realize it's only by God's grace that we can overcome the evil one. And we just need to be praying constantly, God, deliver me from the evil one. And... Um, so I guess we're going to have to stop there. I got, I got even farther behind than I was before, so this is not good. Too many good stories. We'll catch up when we start First Chronicles. <laughs> I appreciate everyone's help.